0: Hello, welcome to Bad Babe Ultra Leftist. Um, I am Kim, I'm in DC. I wanna welcome a uh, special guest here with us today and I'll kick it to her to uh, tell us a little bit about herself, Mel, welcome.
1: Hi everyone, Um, my name is Mel and I am a restorative practitioner and a socialist organizer.
0: Awesome, and we also have Ben. Ben from Portland, hi everyone and Tim.
2: Hey y'all, this is Tim in Minneapolis.
0: Okay, awesome. So we are going to be talking today um, about something that's been on my mind a lot, um, which is restorative justice, which I know a little bit about and I'm excited to learn more about. Um, And particularly, I was hoping we could have this conversation today, um, sort of in in the context of like the bigger abolition conversation that's going on, which is tough and tricky, but I think we're ready for it. But I also wanted to bring back something we didn't do last time and do a quick uh, vibe check for everybody because I've been feeling like absolute garbage lately, and I just feel like it's important to uh, be honest with you all about that. How are you all doing?
3: Vibes are extremely bad. Uh, Federal (laughs) stormtroopers are occupying my city, so I'm not a fan.
2: Um, I can't speak for the rest of Minneapolis, but, uh, I spent a big chunk of my week trying to help a friend in crisis and am totally exhausted, but also like happy to think about something else, but also, you know, to think more about that. Cause I'm gonna, cause I can't avoid it. Um, so yeah, vibes are a little shaky. I'll put it that way. <laughs> How
0: about you, Mel?
1: Yeah, I think it's so interesting that we all kind of are living in these like occupied cities right now. Mm-hmm. And so things are a little bit stressful, but I've taken some time to reconnect with people in the last week or so. And I think that that's really kind of stabilized me.
0: Yeah. I just like, I always want to just, I don't know. I it, I really look forward to this time together when we all get to talk. Um, like this whole week I've been kind of like cycling between like, depression and anger and, like, manically cleaning my house, trying to do something um, that I can control. And so, like, I just, um, I appreciate you all, like, in terms of, uh, I don't know, just having, like, a human moment and getting outside of um, the normal, just trying to survive day to day. Like, this is an important kind of um, thing that we have here that, like, helps me kind of deal, too, especially uh, when shit is uh, worse worse than normal, which it seems to be... Right now, so
3: yeah, we set our normal pretty pretty low, and it's gotten worse than that. So <laughs> it
0: keeps ratcheting down. <laughs> it's,
3: like, it's not great.
0: Oh Jesus Christ! Um, so sort of, it's and it, it's not disconnected, right? Because to, to what we're going to be talking about um, in terms of you see what um, the Trump administration, um, these press secretary. Um, what are, they, what are they called? Whatever, when they have their press conferences um, like every like a, day now, it like seems. A, like
2: a press briefing, right? Is that what it is? The
0: press briefing, yeah. Like, So now, um, right, Ben, all the very violent uh, graffiti in your city. Oh, um, yes.
2: Extreme
3: <laughs> violent Antifa gra- graffiti <laughs> yeah. is happening.
0: We're all going to uh, federal prison for the rest of our lives, um, as we're arrested by Border Patrol uh, for the violent graffiti. Um And they're really, really harping on this fucking, like, law and order thing, right? Um, And, like, violent criminals. And so I I think to the extent that the sort of abolition conversation maybe even three weeks ago um, for people has grown immensely. Like, it's been amazing um, to see where this conversation has gone. But now, even more so, I think... Um, folks are like uh, maybe feel that uh, they should get up to speed (laughs) even more um, rapidly given um, that now the president is like um, look at a federal building sideways and you're definitely going away for 10 years. So that's what I'm
3: thinking about. Honestly, the scariest thing to me is the people that get just straight up disappeared. And who knows? Like I know I see, I follow one person on Twitter who that happened to, and they were released, but like, how, we don't know how many people they took, and we don't know where they are necessarily. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: That's fucked up. That's horrifying shit.
1: Yeah, I think the sense of control within your own community is kind of at an all time low for people right now. Um, you're, we're at this like maximum level of outsider activity. Um, on our blocks and in our streets. And and that can feel like this really scary thing because and which is, I think, something that we should talk about when we're talking about restorative justice today, which is the role in um, community accountability and how well people know each other Mm -hmm. um, and how embedded into the community those in power are and how that can affect this law and order dynamic that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, and you're making me think, too, of, like, just seeing what is happening at the municipal level um, and also, like, federal legislation, which is none of it's going to get passed because it has to go through the Senate. But even the shit that they're trying to do in the House, um, literally, like, the like the banning chokehold stuff, <laughs> like, you, you see the sort of limit of their imagination, right? They're like, if we just get police to obey the law, then, like, everything will be fine. And, like, people are being forced to confront the fact, I mean, murdering people is illegal, but the cops do it every day. Um, (laughs) So, um, so like that idea too, like, I, I think that this conversation is easier than it's ever been or more like not easy, but like, um, more pointed in that, like, we're going to have to figure out an alternative here um, and you're go- like this, this this kind of mental blockage that people would come up against before that I certainly came up against when I started learning about abolition um, it's like how to even imagine a different world like there's no fucking other option at this point we're gonna have to figure something else out
3: amen absolutely
1: right I mean people are starting people who haven't really been plugged into this kind of thing on a wide scale are realizing that this is not working um, to the level where it can't be fixed. And that's what a lot of organizers, I mean, this is something the Black Panthers were talking about decades ago, and um, organizers even beyond that, um, that, you know, were realizing that the current St- police structure and carceral structure is the reform already and it's a reform mm-hmm. of a reformed reform and that this cycle can't continue there has to be something that's radically different and that's uh scary
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a thing I, I think I'd reference like very briefly reference this on a past episode but the thing I always kind of struggle with because of my I guess like my upbringing and the society I live in is um, like you were saying Mel there's there's this component of restorative justice that says, you know, the community needs to guide and be, you know, the kind of baseline for the healing process. And like, right now we stick so many people literally in prison for, you know, the most minor violations, but like, is there a model we can think of where that's just like, not our way of thinking that somebody is just like steps across the line and therefore is outside the community permanently or even temporarily. You know what I mean? Like it's a sort of very different way of thinking about how people work through the harm they've caused. Um, and it's very difficult to, to conceive of that because it takes so much, it seems to take so much more work, right? And that's where I always worry about, um, especially liberals getting used to this is that um, it, it will take more effort for everyone to some extent, except for the people who are already being harmed by the current system, right? Um, yeah, long rambly thought. Sorry, you could uh, feel free to ignore that or respond to well, that. If you well, don't mind, <laughs> like you just
0: reminding me, Tim. Like when I was in law school, I remember I took. I, I really wanted. I wanted to do sort of policy work for, at the government level for like a job, and so I really wanted to take this legislative drafting class. They offered one in the whole, the whole school, and so like I finally got into it. And it was very dumb, and like they were having us do kind of municipal ordinance level drafting, and I was like, "Ugh, this sucks." Okay, so the guy, the professor, would like had us draft a like theoretical um, bill about like a bike safety, like like not not the city doing something to provide safety for bikers, but like some requirement of bikers themselves um, to do some safe behavior. And he was like, "Okay, so what? Come up with you know, you guys brainstorm for some um, penalties." And I was blown the fuck away. Like, people immediately were, like, criminal penalties (laughs) for white shit. And it was, like, not light. It was, like, a year in prison. And I was, like, what are you talking about? Like, everybody's mind just goes there immediately. And it's very much that, like, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail mentality. It's that it's a complete failure of imagination where we just have never, as a society, like, asked ourselves... What else could we do? And so your brain just goes there on this kind of knee jerk level, and that's the end of the, the inquiry. And that's really hard to overcome.
1: Right. I mean, that's a perfect example of the manifestation of this carceral mindset, which is undoubtedly the biggest obstacle that we need to overcome when it comes to achieving abolition and some sort of restorative future um, for dealing with harm, which is the uh, way I don't believe that this is natural to us as humans, but over a very, very long period of time, it's kind of been beaten into us, this idea Mm. of crime and punishment. Um, And a lot of people in power have worked very, very hard to establish that mindset, but it is fundamentally unnatural. um, And it will take a lot of work to undo and and you look at this like and th- with hypothetical scenarios like that I mean even the way it's framed we're not talking about a specific example of a person it's like this other mm-hmm. um, you know this like dehumanization of this quote unquote criminal class that makes it so much easier to impose these really cruel penalties um, on other human beings without ever feeling like you're directly harming another human being I mean I think that that exercise would have gone very differently if simply the professor had said you know if your brother was caught riding his bike without a helmet what should happen to him you know or someone that someone that's close to you would, and even just that simple flip in the exercise I think would cause us to reevaluate wait what's the purpose of this law Why? how do we actually get people to you know work within these certain expectations for their own safety um what is, what are we really getting at? And that will kind of start to undo some of that carceral mindset.
0: That's so interesting because I remember, uh, I found law school to be very depressing and the practice of law to be extremely what? depressing. What?
2: Wait a second,
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of Tim, Tim is, wait, are you, are you practicing? No, I, Tim you
2: I'm, are? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm saying Tim wait a second because on... I totally get it and uh, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: Tim has also uh, gone through this experience, but um, because you're reminding me something I had forgotten until now, The I, something else that I was told in law school, like what a lot of lawyers or at least law professors tell themselves about like law being a, um, like a noble profession or whatever, which it totally isn't is that um, it, it is, it's just interesting to me remembering this, what this kind of, Implies about what they believe about human nature or whatever um, is that like law exists, right? Courts exist. This the series of rules and institutions and processes exist to kind of abstract us away from physical violence because that's obviously how we would solve all disputes otherwise. And so it's like more fucking civilized or whatever to like file these briefs. Um, and, like, don't worry about that it's, like, so complicated and gatekept that, like, regular people, you know, are bankrupted by this stuff um, and go to prison for the rest of their lives for this stuff. And it's completely, like, luck of the draw who you get for an attorney unless you're extremely wealthy. But, like, this idea that, like, we're doing a service because otherwise um, you barbarians would all be tearing each other limb from limb is just, like, something with <laughs> 10 years um ago that was said to me like interesting to like reflect on now like obviously i don't believe that um at all but if you talk yourself into that's what the human baseline is then um yeah you can justify a lot with those abstractions
3: it's funny it's like this exists so that you wouldn't do violence so we're gonna pay some other people to do violence <laughs> instead yeah
1: right and that's an important point to bring up to those who are skeptical uh who maybe understand that there is an issue with the way we're policing right now but are skeptical about the abolition concept as a whole is to point out that this is just the displacement of violence it's not the elimination of it you know when we talk about gun control laws but we leave guns in the hands of police you're just shift your that power mm. is just shifting it's not being dispersed um and, and so if we actually really want an anti-violent movement, we also kind of have to, in some ways, remove the ability to enforce that, uh, enforce the deterrence of that violence as well, which is really scary. It's unnerving to people.
0: Yeah, you're also making me think of, um, I saw something like maybe in the last month or so about how it, it has been challenging in the past to, define or explain like for someone new to the concept or like your fucking parents or whomever, what like structural, structural violence means. And it's like the path between structural violence and like direct violence that's about to be exercised on your person, um, has become so short right now for Mm -hmm. so many more people, um, than it ever has. Like certainly like in my lifetime. And so, um, it's just much more visceral. Like I, we talked several times on this sh- on the um, show here about like the, the the immediate immediate threat of like losing your housing um, right now is like a you know court processes um, can mean you can be on the street and you can be dead in a couple of weeks from now in a way that a lot of people have never had to um, think think about before. Um, so yeah, just. All this is is tying together like a lot of things that um, I've been
1: thinking about recently. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I like you look at like, um, I mean, the odds of you a random person facing structural or institutional violence is is vastly higher than the odds that you're going to experience any interpersonal violence uh, by a lot. And, you know, that violence obviously shot up during these like law and order, like, you know, in the New York city in the seventies and eighties, when we started to ramp up the sort of like law and order um, style of policing and violence, you know, then they, people will claim that the the numbers of uh, violent crime went down. But if you only view a certain type of violence as a crime and another Mm -hmm. type of violence as the enforcement, then you are leaving this big part out of the picture of how many people are under threat of eviction and threat of incarceration and um, uh, threat of hunger and all of these other sort of forms of violence that are more insidious and totally within the boundaries of the law.
0: That's actually like a super good segue. So I was, I was going to ask you if we, uh, let's assume um, folks are listening who sort of um, are very new to sort of like the concept of, restorative justice um I was going to sort of ask you to give us a little table setting I guess any sort of like key terms that um you would need us to know or like what you think sort of makes sense as like a kind of primer for a late audience but like that also like reminds me specifically of this concept of that like how crime I think I maybe even saw you say this recently That like crime, oh, it wasn't you, I know who it was, <laughs> that, like, um, cr- like crime is not a useful, like, term, like, criminal is certainly not a useful term, because the that is, it does not overlap, really, with ha- what harm is at all, like, the criminal right. justice system doesn't actually <laughs> resolve harm, and there's plenty of harm, really, depending on who's doing it, Um, that's not criminalized Um, and so like that feels like maybe a good segue into like like what is this other way of thinking about actually facing, confronting, dealing with resolving harm
1: Uh, Right, I mean you're exactly right and the first step towards uh, preparing your palate for abolition is that distinction between an act that is inherently harmful and an act that is criminalized uh, or illegal in some way. And those are absolutely uh, not the same thing. I mean, uh, slavery was legal in the United Mm -hmm. States for however long it doesn't make it a moral right. Um, And in fact, that institutional protection, you know, was the perpetuator of that harm. And so it was like actively... Uh, developing that harm and hurting more people because it was institutionalized, it made it worse. Um, so, so yeah, and, and I think that the the most helpful way to think then, instead of looking towards the law or to a set of codes as to what is a harmful behavior, we need the abolitionist mindset and the restorative mindset is about shifting your perception away from the inherent quality of an act towards the effect of that act in practice mm-hmm. um, it's a much more helpful way of looking at what are the things that are harmful to a community and what aren't and when we kind of go down that road we realize that there isn't one way to characterize an act i mean uh we know you, we were talking about graffiti earlier for example i mean we know that like graffiti is sometimes Uh, sometimes negatively affects people. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's graffiti that, you know, makes a place more beautiful. And there's graffiti that, you know, might uh, hurt someone or or cause some sort of property damage. Like they're they're not every instance of graffiti is alike. And so it's impossible Mm -hmm. to characterize it as exactly one uh, occupying one particular place on this, like, moral spectrum. Um, so, yeah, focusing on the consequences or the effects of an act rather than the act itself.
2: It's so funny, too, because I, I'm thinking back to my fraught law school experience and like one of the first things we talked about in uh, criminal law. And I, I did not especially like this professor, which you don't need to know, but it's I'm, I've I like to give context. Uh, but but he, he like early on had us go through like a thought exercise about um you know, what, uh, prison is and like what it does and what the purpose of it is. And he was on an special, I don't think he, uh, is a re- remotely anti-capitalist or, uh, abolition minded, uh, human, but he basically said the only legitimate, uh, purposes of prison are, uh, retribution for, for a, morally uh, bad act and like separation taking someone away from the place where they can commit more bad acts and like if you think of like what you just said with the graffiti example um i think we're very much pushed to evaluate these kind of acts as like things that it would take too much effort almost to think about the consequences so we just say bad act has this consequence there you go off with you kind of, you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's so, right. it's so reductive. And also like literally people in the criminal justice system, both uh, lawyers, judges, police, wh- uh, whoever else are all trained to think this way to some extent. And it's, I, yeah, it's, it's it's even a, difficult for me to, to, to think about um, f- things like your example and break it down in terms of like, what's the actual impact? Shouldn't that matter more? But that's a huge shift. It, it, it really is like, Also,
3: we live in a world full of people with varying ideas about what constitutes harm. And we also live in a world with capitalists in it, unfortunately. And so when... Harm to capital and harm to capitalists helps the working class. And I'm not like a a Marxist or like a, a huge class guy, but like if we're if we're locked in a struggle with capitalism like harming capitalism is positive a mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it's, ve- it's going to be very difficult to create a system that makes sense until I mean and obviously we should be trying and that's why I'm really glad that you're doing the work that you're doing Mel uh, but like it's going to be hard to do right I mean it's got to be
0: I can, you just remind me, I, I used to work at this uh, small law firm in the Bay Area that was a First Amendment, uh, like, firm that did First Amendment defense, so, because um, what you're bringing up for me is access to the courts, basically, and, like, who gets to articulate, and people are harmed all the fucking time. People are physically assaulted, like, and there's no, A, the police don't help you with that. Um, they don't help you with, like, actual, like... Scary shit that happens to you. Um, they help like rich people uh, like make property uh, claims. That's about it. Um, but like in even with access to the courts, right? Like rich people have access to the courts. Like rich people have lawyers on retainer. Corporations have corporate counsel in house, and they just like sue all the time. So our particular practice was specifically companies would sue constantly for two things, bad reviews on Yelp <laughs> and <Wow>. also <laughs> and also, relatedly um, bad, like, comments posted on, um, like, finance, like, Yahoo Finance, like, <laughs> stuff, <laughs> Yahoo. right? Yes. I'm serious, this Jeez. is a mispractice, Please. this exists, so, like, and they do it under, this is, it's a choice of law thing, which it's just, it's not fascinating, it's, it's, it's really bad, um, but it, it was a learning experience in that. Constantly they would be alleging business harm, right? They have lawyers specifically to do that and they are quote-unquote experts in like business law so that they would they would sue like regular ass Yelp posters who were like, oh, I like hated this fucking shitty dentist that I went to that like, you know, broke my tooth or whatever. And then they'd be like, oh, actually I'm the best dentist ever. And they would sue under like uh, like interference with like me making a ton of money for my business. And then you, we have to come and educate a fucking judge, as a First Amendment defense lawyer, and be like, "Uh, this is protected First Amendment activity, dum-dums," and like you have to fight for like a year in court for that to get thrown out something that never should have come in the first place. So the entire practice was highlighting how rich people, companies, petty people with access do whatever they want, are constantly feeling harmed. They're not fucking being harmed at all, first of all. And secondly, mm-hmm. it's protected activity. And so that, that thing of of why we have this system that continues to give more power to the already powerful and the already uh, rich is just, I think, uh, attention worth kind of drawing out.
2: I also feel like it, it, this is sort of a petty part of what you just said, but like it highlights how... Um, I don't want to say I try not to use the word "dumb" too much, but judges are dumb. Judges are so detached <laughs> from reality and and like yeah. just like there's exceptions, I guess, but as a, as a group of people, they're so bad at what they're supposed to be doing, and it's because they're detached. It's because there's this you know uh, there's there's this sort of um, idealization of objectivity and pe- and any anytime you yes. have somebody who's their job is to be objective. They're always going to be terrible at that because you literally can't be and it's ridiculous to of pretend course. someone can be.
1: Of course, and 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 it's important to remember the institution that employs these judges. I mean, ultimately their job is to and no one, no judge would deny this, their job is to implement uh, and enforce the law to the best of their ability, mm-hmm. which inherently means that they are Recognizing the law as fully legitimate mm-hmm. um, I, So so in that sense It's impossible to be objective As a judge Because you are reinforcing A set of principles That is inherently violent mm-hmm. um, and, and they are Judges are kind of like Put on this pedestal As these uh, arbiters of truth And arbiters of the law But they're human beings With their own sense of uh, sets of personal biases and agendas that are, you know, either explicitly or implicitly being uh, imposed through their decisions. Um, And it's just not right. And rarely does a person in court ever have any sort of personal relationship with this person who's making these major decisions about their lives, um, which can make the courts even more uh, intimidating and terrifying to the average working class person. It's, I mean, this person, who's sitting up on the stand, who doesn't know me at all, knows nothing about my situation except for what I'm able to get out Mm -hmm. on the stand is making these decisions about my life and and nobody should be subjected to that. Everyone deserves so much greater dignity with their path to justice and so much more personal care.
0: Yeah, I I would, I'm thinking too, like I would go further to like point out explicitly, like to your point that these are all human beings involved in the process is like uh (laughs) doing this stuff like grinds down your soul too like if you're involved in the i mean civil laws like this too family laws like this too but criminal like specifically i think in a similar way that you can see sort of like because of our completely non-functional healthcare system like people who work in er's um Like you're consistently seeing just like a horror show. And I think that most human beings, um, if they, if they didn't start out, uh, being awful, dehumanizing people, um, get there sooner or later because you cannot actually take on all the trauma and pain and disruption and violence, um. And sleep at night um, and try to have right. hu- human relationships. So you're going to have to distance yourself even further. And I think that that particularly shows up um, in the case, there's been a lot of talk about this lately where um, I feel like men in particular, like cis men in particular, want to like push back on abolition discussions and say, well, like, what about rape? What about sexual assault? Uh, first of all, you don't care. <laughs> like we all know. Right. And secondarily, like that's probably the strongest example that I can think of, of like where it's extremely clear, um, you know, the propaganda that is like one Order SVU uh, aside that like police and prosecutors uh, do not give a fuck about survivors. And so like it is it's A, not gonna do anything to repair harm. It is extremely re-traumatizing um, for survivors. And those people are dehumanized um, as well, um, as well as the um, alleged perpetrators. Um,
1: right, so yeah. right. So let's talk more about that point that you just made about the survivor's experience within the courts that are supposedly designed to bring them justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you use the word re-traumatizing, which is a word you hear over and over again when it ta- c- comes to uh, victims of uh, assault, sexual assault. Um, and and I think it's important to understand why it's re-traumatizing and it's so uh, it's so revictimizing to people because there is even as a even as the plaintiff in a case, you have basically no say. I mean, you are up there mm-hmm. presenting your side of the story, the information that you have, and then handing it over to people who are supposedly more qualified than you to make the decision about what the next step is um, or what the path to justice is on Mm -hmm. your behalf. And Mm -hmm. we know that when you're assaulted, when you're sexually assaulted, um, that your power is being taken away from you or it's being attempted to take to be taken away from you. And, and that's exactly what's happening in our courts too. And that's why restorative justice is so important because the primary, when all is said and done, the primary goal is to re-empower survivors and give them that say that they're not receiving under the current kind of like judicial system.
2: Is yeah. this, I, I'm gonna I propose a kind of, uh, a, maybe like an exercise or something. I don't know what you want to call it, but like using like a less, uh violent example do you think you could kind of walk us through what a a restorative process looks like and like especially it's it's helpful to sort of contrast it from the the terrible one that we currently have i don't know if that's too much to ask but it would be really helpful for me
1: sure um okay so we can give an example of maybe something like property theft Mm -hmm. as a as a more minor minor example of it in which there is a really clear perpetrator of harm and there's a really clear survivor of that harm um and the act is very distinct um there are there there have been times when I have been harmed or I something was stolen from me and I did not report it to the police because I didn't necessarily want something bad to happen to this person Mm-hmm. But, on the other hand, I still wanted my time with that person. I wanted that reconciliation opportunity. I wanted the opportunity to you know express the way that I feel, tell my story, get my closure on that. but I you know, without the intervention of these courts where I can't really choose what happens to this person um, and that option isn't really on the table for anybody right now either you report something and it's officially out of your hands and you're potentially ruining someone's life or you have to drop it and you may never know who did it, or even if you do, you may never get that opportunity for closure or to, you know, make amends that are maybe less severe than the courts would impose. Um, and so a restorative approach to um, an, an event like that, like, let's say, Ben, you um, steal my bike that I use to get okay. to work. <laughs> um, first of all Ben how would do, totally you? do
2: that Ben is such a bike thief I mean, we all know this I,
1: I am yeah uh, you You just have bike thief written all over you I do um, okay so a restorative process would be one in which I'm way more involved as the survivor of that harm than I would be if I uh, reported you to the police so and and in a restorative process, I would kind of get my chance to let you know how it's impact. You may have not known that it was even my bike. You may have just seen a bike on the street and taken it, but she didn't realize, oh wait, that was that, that's that person I see sometimes at the grocery store who lived down the street and She needs this bike to get to work, to pay her rent, and she has a little kid that she's trying to take care of. All of the, like, the context for your action, which is a lot of times missing, um, giving you the context for that action, in which there's a very strong likelihood that you may, you know, express remorse for. um, Because at the end of the day, you probably did this because you were in need too, not because you were Mm -hmm. trying to harm me. Um, And us together kind of working out a path towards repair that is tailored to the specific situation we are in and uh a solution that i am much more involved in right Um, and that can look like a lot of things but so much of it is (laughs) (laughs) tailor-made and right and at the end of the day that's what most people want like they just want their damn bike back they don't actually want to hurt people, I don't want to punish you, I just want you to give it back. Um, And that's not always the case because we were talking earlier about carceral mindset and a lot of people that's kind of embedded that like that's the path to justice. And in a lot of ways, people don't always know what they need when it comes to justice. And so that that takes some work. That's not something that can just instantly happen. But right, I mean, there are studies and in mediations that show that when victims or survivors of harm themselves are kind of leading the charge on the consequences of an action, almost every time they are far less severe than those chosen by a judge or by a jury like almost every time
0: yeah you're making me think of something oh sorry just briefly um like the i was going to bring up which i think is true and worth pointing out but you made me think of something else as well that like Um, also the way that I think, again, that this is like propaganda, like TV shows and movies and books and whatever, um, that we have this mistaken impression, um, at least in the U S in like American pop culture that like, there's all these like serial killers out there, which like, by the way, they're all cops and, um, like stranger, right? Like the stranger danger thing. And the reality is, is that most. Uh, interpersonal violence, at least, is people who know each other often mm-hmm. intimately. But even beyond that, I really like the, um, the the further example that I hadn't thought about before. That, like, even if I haven't actually met you, but you're probably my neighbor. Like, we're right. in proximity. We we share a community, and it's something that maybe neither of us have ever thought about before. And even just getting to know you, your circumstances, that you live four blocks from me, like maybe your kids go to school with my kids or like something that you have a human connection. I think Mm -hmm. it's like a really, really important um, thread to pull on. I like that a
1: lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a direct tie between how tethered a person feels to their community and the people in that community and the harm that they perpetrate. Um, You know, even looking at super extreme examples like school shootings. I mean, Mm. these kids who are um, you know coming into these schools they are rarely the popular kid that are you know super well adjusted with lots of friends they're kids who exist on the margins of this community and so they don't feel as accountable and this word accountability we've been talking about it a lot but it's important I think to talk about what it is and that's the um the set of kind of circumstances or unwritten expectations that make you feel responsible towards other people um Mm. and and kind of mitigate your behaviors and help you regulate your behaviors for the for the good of a certain group of people or for yourself um and so someone with lots of friends is gonna feel more accountable and want, going to want to keep their community safe. Someone who doesn't have a lot of friends or a person who doesn't know any of their neighbors. Um, doesn't experience that as much. Mm. And so they're so much more likely to cause harm. For example, you know, we keep going back to like the graffiti thing or the bike stealing thing. You're so much more likely to like graffiti the building owned by a person that you don't know Mm -hmm. than you are to the graffiti like your friend's house because you know that like (laughs) they're gonna have to clean it up and that you're gonna be directly harming them. And so that's harder to reconcile with. So the more tethers we create in a community, the more the harm is reduced. Do you, so do you find I that
2: that? A, oh no, Ben, go, You go first. I can hold on my. All thought. right.
3: Well, mine's a long question, though. So if you got something short, go.
2: Oh for no, no, it. no. I, this is probably pretty, pretty brief. I, I was just sort of wondering. I was going to phrase this as a hypothetical, but I, I hate those, so I'm not going to do that. Um, do you find that that approach, the restorative justice approach, helps deal with like the problem of the people who caused harm? not acting in good faith or sort of turning things on the victim, I hate to say victim, sorry, the the person harmed, that kind of thing, Uh, which is, you know, it's a problem within the carceral system for sure, and also just within society at large. Um, Yeah, just, I mean, have you found that that that, that approach is helpful to kind of like having people act in good faith even when they've caused harm?
1: Well, when you offer the potential for these kind of reduced consequences or or not to say reduced but Consequences that are maybe more appropriate and that if you feel like a, as a perpetrator of harm, like you're going to be kind of listened to and met where you're at a little bit more, mm-hmm. then you might be less likely to feel the compulsion to like lie or to, you mm-hmm. know, you're talking about the, the concept of uh, DARVO, which is deny attack and reverse victim and offender. This like concept of like turning the tables on someone because you know that the hammer is going to come down on someone. So mm-hmm. just you want to make it not you if there isn't necessarily if you're saying that there might not even be a hammer because the solution might be something simpler and less punitive not always but sometimes it is like with the bike situation um, you might not actually get punished you might just need to give the bike back and so you're probably a lot less likely to use these manipulation tactics um, if the fear of punishment is really the thing that's driving you but that's kind of a big topic
2: yeah, yeah, and I and I like that Ben said I'm going to ask a really long question, and I said, "Hold on, let me ask." That yeah, you gave a really and, <laughs> equally... that's, and that's a really
1: complicated <laughs> question, and that was not a one size fits all answer that I just gave. That was just <laughs> the tip of that iceberg. All right.
3: Well, no, but that have... was
2: that was helpful. Thank you. Totally.
3: Yes. I have uh, one short and one kind of longer question. The, the short one is, um, I heard you say the phrase transformative justice at the beginning, and then restorative justice. Is there a difference between those two things or are they just two different terms of art for the same thing? Uh, are we moving away from one model or to, a, to the other or something like that?
1: Um, yeah, there are some people that kind of use them interchangeably, which is the camp that I'm in. And there's some people that kind of distinguish them a little bit more. Um, Rest- there, there are those that say that the term restorative justice is kind of focused more on the after the fact um, procedure and transformative justice is more holistic in terms of not just altering the way that we deal with harm, but also making the proactive effort to build a community that is less likely to be harmed and mm. um, I I think that both of them at the end of the day have the same goals in that respect and so I do use them interchangeably but um, that transformative justice has an eye towards um, you know transforming people transforming communities the very character of those communities and at the end of the day you can't really be restorative without that element too you can't only focus on how to deal with the harm because that's impossible. You have to also be working at being proactive on preventing it.
3: Okay. So for the longer question, um, and, and feel free to turn this question down if you, if you don't want to answer it or if you, you don't think that we have enough time. But um, we did go through a very brief hypothetical, but I'd like to know more about like what a restorative justice, and I know I'm sure that there's lots of different ones, uh, what a restorative justice process looks like from start to finish? Who are the parties involved? Um, and what those parties do?
1: Yeah, I mean, we can talk about it. So so in my kind of practice as a restorative practitioner, we, we call it a restorative conference. Um, now it's important to note that I don't necessarily work within the court system. I work in um, you know communities and within organizations and institutions. But what you're talking about is a restorative conference, which is a structure, a very highly scripted, highly structured meeting between offenders, um, survivors, and their support networks, and anyone who is aff- affected by the behavior. Um, it's not. It's it's more structured, more rigid than something like mediation or or counseling. Um, and essentially, the way that we do it is. Um, we ask what happened to both parties. You know, we ask the, you ask the offenders, you know, what happened? What were you thinking about? What's been your thought process since? Um, who has been affected? Like trying to kind of get the idea of where they're at in terms of their perception of the events. And then the victims are asked the same questions. Um, but the really important element is that both parties are kind of asked, you know, what do you think? needs to happen to make things right. Um, Their support networks, they get to speak. So let's say as a victim, I am bringing a supporter who is able to say like, it was so hard for me to see my daughter struggle through this or I had to like take on a second job to support her because she had to move in with me. Offenders also get a support who gets to speak. I mean, it's very, very all-encompassing because it's designed to try to bring as many people who are involved into the fold. And that's another big difference between the restorative process and the court process, which kind of treats this as like a one victim, uh, one perpetrator sort of situation. And we know that the people who are affected by harm uh, is a much wider net. Um, And so... And so consequences are kind of, and these are obviously facilitated by a practitioner and, um, and at the end, at the end of the day, you know, the consequences are going to be decided based on the needs of all of these different people, um, and that doesn't mean that there, you know, an exa- some example that I give sometimes is uh, there's this case uh, of a group of boys, college aged boys who are back in Pennsylvania visiting from college and were kind of fooling around. And there's this really beloved, uh, historic protected bridge outside the town and they were smoking cigarettes or fooling around or something. And the, ber- the bridge was lit on fire and was totally destroyed. Um, and obviously, obviously this is a criminal offense, um, but instead of just sending the boys off to jail, they used this restorative conferencing technique and the people in the town got to share their the way that this behavior was... Uh, you know, uh, the way this behavior affected them and, and the perpetrators got to really have a deeper understanding about the impact of their harm because at the end of the day, they were just boys who were fooling around and acting recklessly and acting foolishly. This didn't mean that they still weren't gonna face consequences and I think that they still went to jail for it. Um, um, and that's kind of another element to that problem, but that was a rest- kind of a halfway point, like a restorative approach within the judicial system.
3: That's interesting so what's the role so you work in there um in the with restorative conferences um what is your role are you the facilitator when when you do that yes okay so what what kind of do you do in those circumstances do you just walk them through the script or is there more to it
1: uh, yeah, I mean, it is super scripted. And so, so a lot of it is kind of by the book with my job. And, and there's a little bit of like a trust the process element to a lot of it. Um, and restorative conferencing isn't even necessarily right for every situation because some of that, some of that kind of accountability element has to already be in place for it to work. Um, if I don't know you and I don't give a shit about you, then even a restorative conference is not necessarily going to suddenly make you make me care about you. But people oh, that who makes already a lot have sense. some sort yeah, of Yeah, that actually yeah. closes
3: the gap for me on a lot of things there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so in and restorative justice is all about tailoring your response to a situation based on the material circumstances of that situation. And that is a very complicated algorithm of so many different elements, which is why it takes so much time and so much care to do right.
3: Right. Right. So this is, this is community organizing. This is, you know, not just facilitating a meeting. This has to do with how do you bring these two, these two sides together and, and allow for that process to, to take place. That's, it's really interesting. So what happens if the, I, I should get off of this hypothetical, but I'm very curious as to what happens if the, uh, the perpetrator.
2: Uh... You, you mean, Ben, by you, uh, perpetrator, you mean you, the bike thief, You mean right? you. Yeah. <laughs> if I, <laughs> the bike thief, what if I don't want to give your bike back? Like what happens to me?
1: Well, that doesn't, you're, it's not necessarily up to you. And at the end of the day, you were given the opportunity to speak your piece and you were given the opportunity to hear about how uh, how your actions affected others but uh, that if you don't decide to cooperate that doesn't mean that you don't have to face any consequences to your actions and a big misunderstanding about restorative justice is that it is somehow the replacement to consequences Um, and that is a big pushback for RJ that we see like in the schools for example teachers who feel like they will lose control of their classroom if they start implementing RJ and it's, it's not that at all it's just about making it a more communal decision, making it a decision that incorporates the victim's uh, side more and even the perpetrator's side more. It's about bringing that down to a grassroots level. Now, the group can still decide or the community can still decide, you know, you don't have a choice, you have to give the bike back. But you were given a more restorative approach towards that decision. And that decision was not that decision was not made in a vacuum. It was made based on the needs that we uncovered through the process.
2: You know, I'm thinking of, of uh, why, why there's so much resistance to this idea in at least American society. Not that there's like hostility to it across the board. I think most people probably aren't super aware of it, but um, you know, like even people I know who are familiar with it sometimes have like the fears you just laid out about, you know, teachers saying like, how can I be in control of my classroom unless I'm this, you know, ultimate authority figure. And I really yeah. think it is like, there's, our current system is entirely authoritarian. Like it's just, it's it has not very little to do with uh, the wishes of the people involved with a particular incident. It's just giving power to these kind of arbitrary people to lay out consequences so that, um, you know totally. th- so that that we that we as as even people who are involved in may be experiencing harm in some way don't have to do too much like it, and so I, i'm sort of thinking of how um, this this is potentially a part of a bigger shift away from the carceral mindset but that's really it's it's a really really hard to to imagine thing because it's so like it underscores the way we think about so many things that if you do something bad, you deserve retribution. You deserve uh, if you're dangerous enough, you deserve to be separated from society either for a little bit or for forever. And like it's it's I don't know. I, I'm I'm trying to think about this as a way where where we can shift people's thinking about these things in a broader sense because that's I mean it's necessary, right? Like we actually have to do that. And I yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. Can I just bring up the flip side of this coin? Because I think this is pertinent to to some of our personal lived experience here is that the flip side of the coin, sort of the way that I was talking about like sexual assault before where like we have a popularized understanding of how it works that has nothing to do with how like survivors are actually treated by the court system. This is like the broader like Me Too conversation. This is any time... You bring up um, harm has been done in a workplace, um, in a voluntary socialist organization, let's say, (laughs) Um, where people are not supposed to be behaving this way. But then, you know, allegations of harm are raised and it is the knee-jerk reaction not to exact retribution, not to... um, actually like support the the person reporting harm in any way but to make that person shut up and go away um and so the really kind of fucked up way that then when you introduce restorative justice as like a tool in the tool belt, I guess, or like a concept that we should be aware of or something that like as leftists, we should be like down with. Um, but then people don't actually do their homework, like, which is why I'm really happy we're having this conversation. Cause I think a lot of people will benefit a lot from this info. Um, I have heard it with my own ears, multiple people who have been told like you have caused harm have said to me, um, well, like I should get, um, you know, I need to say my piece. I should get. I should be able to do restorative justice. So it's now almost become become this thing that like you, okay, you hurt somebody, and so well now I need to speak my piece. I need to win. I need to fight this. I'm entitled to this, um, rather than this is a way to um, let the person who's been harmed speak. So it. So uh-huh. that's that's not how it works. But a lot of people who are sort of quote-unquote in charge of uh, making sure that we start to incorporate restorative justice principles or processes into again like our sort of like voluntary relationships and organizations don't know what the fuck they're doing and start going down this uh road that um freaks me out a lot
1: right i mean and, and what you're talking about you can totally see the manifestation of this like oppositional mindset Mm. that's created in the courts i mean you literally have like side a and side b you have the plaintiff and then you have the defendant you know you have the criminals and you have the the judicial system it's like this very us them mentality which creates this like super bowl like wrestling sort of like mindset about winners and losers and mm-hmm. we sort of justice just seeks to kind of chip away at that idea because it's so wrong and, and it's such a bad way to go into the process. The whole point is that there aren't necessarily winners and losers. It Everyone gets to speak. I mean, the consequences that happen are the natural consequences that are appropriate for the situation. And and at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, there's there's people who are trying to weaponize restorative justice in our organizations because they believe that it is this kind of shortcut out of consequences um, or a way another tool of manipulation for them to use. Um, But it's just a different path to consequence. And we're already, we already have a path towards consequences. Mm -hmm. This is just a different one. And like I said, at the end of the day, the community are still deciding you can't avoid these consequences, but we'll at least let you speak before they happen. Um, And people have bad experiences when this is implemented procedurally um, uh, in a careless way.
0: Yeah. I, actually, can I ask you, I don't know if you have any insight or just, I don't know, at, from your sort of practice of doing this, I, I think to me this is a continuum of just the way, you know, in our very atomized, competitive, insecure society that this is just how we have relationships with people in general. Like I know people, people's marriages are like this. People's friendships are like this. Certainly it is with your coworkers and anyone that you feel in competition with in any way that we just have this, like, even if it's not as open as like, I got to get over, right? Like I'm not, I'm not trying to take advantage of someone, but I need to win. I need to prevail. I need to feel right. I need to feel like I'm okay. And, and that it's, We have this very dog eat dog like atomized mentality, and so it feels like, you know, this is maybe right for like us for our audience here of people who are trying in a bunch of different ways in all the ways that we show up in life to like break down hierarchy and like these power dynamics. And for me, a lot of that has been letting go of being raised very competitively, right, and trying to have to be vulnerable and to show up and to be present and to be willing to. Be hurt or you know misunderstood or something like that in in my interpersonal relationships and so it feels like this is a bigger practice that we sort of as leftists certainly as like more whatever libertarian socialist types can be thinking about if if and when we ever show up um in one of these processes that we'll be better equipped to to sort of do it if we are even practicing i just wonder how that resonates or has shown up for you or not sort of have you've been doing this for a while
1: oh absolutely I mean I totally agree that this atomization is a huge problem and we know that this is behavior that's incentivized by capitalism it's like inherently competitive and we see the success capitalism necessarily um, uh, means that we see the success of another as fewer resources in our pocket that's mm-hmm. how we are that's how we are you know programmed to think in order to be successful and to survive within capitalism and so that is of course going to leak into every area of our life and all of our interpersonal relationships like you said people's people see their marriages as this win-lose thing as Mm -hmm. opposed to we're on the same team and at the end of the day we both have the same goal which is a successful marriage or, you know, we should have the same goal which is a successful organization in which people work well together Uh, even if that means that some people don't get what they want some of the time Mm -hmm. and that's what that's what democracy is, right? It's not everybody getting what they want Mm -hmm. it's about the group getting what it needs Um, and so restorative justice is such a massive project because it means that we have to be breaking down those mindsets and we have to be creating communities that feel invested in the whole. And a lot of socialists understand that in theory, but have difficulty understanding the areas of their life in which they could be practicing that better. And are maybe not even aware of the ways in which they are not practicing that like communal sensibilities, and are uh, reproducing these capitalists, uh, you know, paradigms within their organizing.
0: Word.
2: Dan, you don't you don't think that over competitive, over ambitious people in socialist <laughs> orgs are helping? Hmm,
1: that's an
2: huh. odd thought. Hmm. Huh.
1: The Socialist Highland Games. (laughs) That's how we decide our co-chairs.
3: Wait, I I heard, I either heard Socialist Highland Games or I heard DSA Convention 2019. One or the other.
1: (laughs) Ay, ay, ay.
2: Well, we figured out the name of the episode at least, so that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when a plan comes together.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but like that, that convention, to speak very candidly, um, and I I know I'm speaking for others as well that convention was extremely traumatizing for mm-hmm. me um not because there were certain you know not, not because I didn't always get what I wanted because you go in expecting that there's going to be some resolutions that fail that you are were hoping for or some re- resolutions that pass that you oppose that's a, a given But feeling that kind of powerlessness and feeling the kind of more insidious elements of power grabbing at play that obstruct the very organic, natural, truthful process towards a collective decision, that is what is so difficult to watch as a socialist. And and the thing that we need to be fighting back at, because at the end of the day, that's going to be what keeps members in organizations, is that feeling of power that feeling of a voice within their organization like there aren't these manipulation tactics that are going to overpower their voice
0: yeah absolutely and I, I would like you reminding me I would like to come back sometime soon to this um idea that we talked about about doing a episode about prefigurative politics because like for me right like joining this quote unquote, mass ha-ha, uh, socialist organization uh, was like, you know, we can do whatever we want. There's no bosses here. There's no, you don't have to replicate this stuff. And it's like, it's hard and it's challenging and it is vulnerable to really show up and like put your heart and soul into this stuff and try to figure out how to build a better world, a better society or just like a better community together. And I think that's what I'm getting at with this. Like you have to have some rigorous sort of community norms that we are all bought into where we treat each other with dignity and respect. And that's like our actual shared goal. That's what success actually looks like in order for these, like, you know, to upend um, the carceral logic and these other processes that we just sort of like rely on like knee jerk. in the, the broader society right now. And and to find out that those things not only didn't exist, but also that that's not the project that we're all embarked on together was like extremely difficult uh-huh. for me. And so yeah. I, I want to continue to think about and chew on and talk about um, with folks who are interested in doing that. Like, you know, wh- it, it, let <laughs> the world is getting, dry erase boarded right now like let's like really think about like what what we want to do and how and how we can do it and i think that this is a huge part of it so this is helping crystallize my thinking a lot yeah Yeah, kim i mean you were oh go ahead
2: no i was just gonna say i mean it's uh, like very briefly it's it's there's so many spaces both in dsa and not where the absence of like commonly understood community agreements and like i don't want to call it an enforcement mechanism but some type of sort of like common accountability, it it just makes Mm -hmm. it impossible to do meaningful work. And and it's it's hard to develop those things, but we have to, like literally have to.
0: I love the way you define that at the beginning Mel about accountability is about like this feeling tethered to other people, um, which is maybe also a different way of saying like conceiving of ourselves as being on the same team or like doing a communal project together, you know?
1: Mm, Yeah, really feeling that direct viscerally feeling that direct relationship between your actions and the people around you. I mean, that's accountability. Um, And uh, you're you're exactly right in this concept of prefigurative politics, like this is so serious because we need to be replicating these values that we have for society as a whole within our organizations. If we're not able to implement those within our organizations, how can we suddenly just kind of make them appear out of thin air you know during a time of revolution it's just not possible um, and that's in the struggle of a lot of amazing organizers within socialist organizations like DSA is is trying to create that set of values and and I don't I think was Ben or Tim one of you just had just said uh, you can't organize unless you have this fundamental set of shared values from the very beginning Mm -hmm. our belief about what our responsibility is to each other as organizers if we can't agree on that then how can we talk about organizing strategies and what campaigns are meaningful and um, you know what kind of world we're building if we don't understand a relationship to other humans. And Kim, at the beginning, you said something about imagination and that's so important is that we must have this really, really radical imagination for what happens if we burn it all down? What is growing from that <laughs> rubble? Like what, what do we have to show for it? We need to be able to tell people, hey, capitalism isn't working, the carceral system isn't working, look at this cool thing we have going that we could be looking towards instead. Mm -hmm. We need to be building that model to be switching to and looking towards, that has to happen now.
2: It's my understanding that that if uh, the only thing we should be doing is building a mass workers party and all this other stuff is just gonna disappear (laughs) as soon as we do that.
3: Uh, <laughs> one of the things I was I was actually thinking was that that like when we talk about this, we talk about these you know competitive ideas and this adversarial idea. Um, and one of the things that leads to is if if the conflict is big enough, the correct answer is to leave. There's no there's no potential for yeah. enforcement. There's no possibility for enforcement because like so many other things it's voluntary the very mm-hmm. few things in life that are not voluntary are unfortunately things that eventually need to be removed like being part of a, you know an imperialist state is unfortunately not thing not something i have control over um, right. but for if we're gonna build a better world um and if we're going to build a, if we're, if what it takes to build that better world is something that you can be a part of or not. And obviously it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then I mean, the mo- the, I, no, yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah. If you have, if you have a, a carceral mindset, if you have a, a punitive justice system, what's the point? Anyone who causes harm has good reason to leave. And some people who cause harm probably should leave but Mm -hmm. there's a broad spectrum of of harm you know there's little harm and big harm and anyone who does anything at all wrong has no reason to continue with the organization
1: right and so and and that's why i tell people you know i i deliver trainings to DSA chapters on how to kind of implement these ideas. And, and Kim, I think you went to one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's great. Uh, And this idea that I work really, really hard to reinforce, which I think some people have a hard time with, which is that most of your resources honestly should be going into that proactive element. Mm -hmm. It should be going in towards building those tethers and building that accountability because once harm has already taken place, it can be really hard to put that back in the bottle. Um, It can be done, but it's so much more work and it's so much more difficult. And when chapters uh, or organizations are kind of starting on this process for the first time, Everyone's really eager to talk about all of these. Oh, well, what if, what if this happens? How do we deal with it? What if this happens? How do we deal with it? And that can be really easy to want to, to go that route. But at the end of the day, I I tell them to honestly forget about what to do after the harm has occurred and focus a ton of effort and a ton of time into creating a community where these things are less likely to happen. Um, And that's going to be much better in the long run. And you're going to build these good habits for interpersonal, uh, relationships anyway
0: yeah the conversation that we had right after that which i appreciated so much um and i will tell you that at least like with my local experience the reason why none of this shit went anywhere is because the the actual goal of a lot of people is just challenging for power uh it's not we're not we were not doing like a group project at all um and what i thought would maybe be I think is a good practice, and what I thought would be more palatable, um, and like we should just challenge ourselves to do, is to more think about this as like a day to day, right? Like, how do we how do we start to build those community norms where we don't? What always happens when people grievance each other? When people file formal complaints against each I other? I love grievance. <laughs> That's a
1: verb.
0: Yeah. I know. <laughs> Um, is because some interpersonal stuff and accepting, of course, there have been numerous documented, like actual crimes committed, like Mm -hmm. violent crimes committed against each other. But putting that aside, um, most often, um, in Mac, to my knowledge, it has been interpersonal or political beefs, challenges, tensions, stressors that are amplified, um, by sort of like opposing parties, camps, whatever, that escalate over a period of months or years Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the point where somebody feels they need to do like an HR report at that point. I mean, it it really is the equivalent of like an EEOC process where you're like filing like a harassment thing with your HR department. It's
1: appealing to like some sort of higher institution for intervention. But what it actually is, is over this long period of time, it is the inability of individuals to self-mediate. And what we're seeking is a community of people who are able to deal with harm themselves, deal within the community. We don't want to take our... Problems to the courts because a judge who doesn't know me is going to be making decisions. It's not necessarily going to be the right decision because they're missing so much context. They're missing that accountability. We want self-sustaining communities that are able to deal with harm uh, within themselves. I saw I saw a video of this school in Spain where children are taught this from a very very young age, and it was amazing to see. Uh, there was some sort of like conflict on the playground and there was no teacher intervention whatsoever. Other kids, these are like kindergartners, other kids come in and they they kind of like step in and they mediate and they de-escalate the situation. I mean, it was like, they were like, well, better than grownups because grownups can't do that. But it was like amazing. And that's what I mean about a self-sustaining community. We're not gonna need to appeal to this like higher process, like a grievance process or a grievance officer, at least not nearly as often if we're able to actually resolve our issues ourselves. Absolutely.
2: It's such a funny thing too, given, you know, we've had a few uh, kind of grievance-ish things within my chapter, which I will not describe at all, but like the 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 it always comes down to kind of like should you be a member or not? What will the punishment be? And it, like I don't think there's there's really an overt uh, punishment fixation, but it is sort of just the framework we're used to thinking through because mm-hmm. we haven't had this more sort of like, um, you know, me- mediating, community-minded perspective um, that you almost have to ha- start having from a young age. Like, I think we can change our behavior as adults, but it's it's so much harder. Um, mm. and, and like, yeah. people don't feel, it's, it's both that the, the role of the person who comes in to resolve conflict doesn't isn't really rewarded very much in our society mm. <laughs> like yeah, it's no it, it's all. yeah i don't i don't know exactly what it is but it's a thing where it, it's almost looked down on as as being somebody who's like you know they're, it's they're the being patriarchy. yeah it's well the patriarchy. That's, that's, it is the patriarchy. <laughs> it is the, it is, we can all whisper it's the patriarchy right now if we want um but yeah i mean like it, I, I think it's just not a valued thing in society and it's almost regarded as being like touchy-feely BS as opposed to something that is potentially totally. transformative.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want when really the,
2: the touchy-feely BS is when the police arrest you because they should stop touching and feeling. Yeah,
1: <laughs> stop, so. stop and frisk up. is the true
0: touchy-feely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to jump in and say, I think that uh, the experience with those children actually says something a little bit to me, which is that we are engaged. I mean, one of the things, one of the great changes that kind of happened in some of our minds, you know, as we radicalized, and I don't know what everyone's story is, but is that we don't have to fight the culture war, the culture war anymore, because we're fighting for improved material conditions. But in reality, like we are fighting a culture war in that we have to create an entirely new culture uh, right and and that is a generational project that I, I can I can start today and pick up a language that I don't already speak, and I can I know that if I work at it hard enough, I can get to the point where I can speak, where I can get by. But it is so much easier. If a child learns that language from from the beginning, from the the earliest point in their life, and there yeah. is, you know, linguists know there's a cutoff point uh, at which it becomes markedly more difficult to learn a language fluently.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not just changing your behavior; you're changing your fundamental outlook about your position in the universe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, your responsibility to other people. What what human nature is. I mean, we know that's the argument for capitalism as a whole, right? Like this idea of human nature that we are inherently competitive and we fight for resources and it's just the way that we are, even though it's impossible to understand what human nature really is as long as we're living in one particular system. Um, But yeah, we're asking people to change the nature that's been beaten into them their whole lives. And so there is an extent that we cannot change that. And there is then the next question of like, all right, well, we can still change our behaviors. And how do we then in how do we persuade people to act in a way that they believe is not in their best interests, even if we know that it's in the best interests of the whole?
0: This is the, uh, the flip side of the coin with like changing what you're putting out into the world in terms of your behavior and how you treat others. I think what culture change actually is. Um, is changing our expectations, which is why the conversation, has, uh, expectations of others and sort of like the world around us, like the way it's supposed to work. And that's the part that's really, really hard when you're sort of starting from scratch because you don't have another frame of reference other than just what you're used to. But I think that that's what's been so interesting and like on my best days uh, approaching Uplifting about like the conversations that have been happening in the past several months where shit that was just not on the table e- even as a conversational um topic is now whatever who knows how possible but like on people's tongues like in conversation and the the needle has moved at least in terms of what we are um what we are consider we might be like deserving of um which i think is the trick
3: note to matt the producer please leave those police sirens in in the <laughs>
0: Yes, I've got police, I've got uh, fireworks and hopefully from ben. the leaf blower as
1: well. We've got, got everything today. I decided to report that stolen bike. I had enough.
0: Oh, no,
2: <laughs> yeah, sorry, but this is, this <laughs> was actually, a right? this was a ruse so we could catch you. And no, you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, right like is a into it.
1: We got you. Fed, you, you've
0: so. been served. <laughs> <laughs> well, any final words? Questions, comments, concerns for Mel before
2: we let her go. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been that was super amazing. awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. And I, I, I my only final thought is that like uh, we didn't really touch on this, but I am a super guilt driven human and I'm working hard these days to get past that and that's that's Good. mixed up in this stuff too, because it doesn't mm-hmm. actually make you a better person to feel guilty yeah. all the time, as it turns out.
1: Good point. I mean, definitely. I mean it's about the source of your guilt, right? Like why do you feel why do you feel guilty? when something happens and if that guilt is a result of you know those tethers and this accountability and your impact on others then that's great i mean i i talk all the time about how i love shame i love talking about shame i think shame is wonderful (laughs) if we if if it's used correctly if it's not a stigmatizing type of shame that ostracizes people but a shame that we use When we that we feel when we feel like we have let down someone in our circle in our community, because that's what drives us to be better and that's what prevents us from doing harm. So harnessing that shame and harnessing that guilt for good can be an absolutely wonderful thing if it's done critically.
2: Well, I'm just gonna keep keep on. I'm gonna keep on chugging ahead then with my my guilt train. (laughs) Yeah, go for
1: it. As long as it's
2: as long as it's it's a guilt train that's going in the right direction and has the right (laughs) fuel.
0: That's exactly right. I think maybe the distinction or one way to think about the distinction is because I've always heard like guilt described as, and maybe it ends up being just a semantic distinction without a difference, but I've always heard it described as like guilt is something that you, like you did, you did something bad that like, so theoretically you could do something about it. And shame is something about who you are as a person that feels very unchangeable. Like, first of all, I do personally believe that the person that you are, is every day is a new day and it is your behavior. It is how you decide to show up in the world. So maybe they don't have to be so different, but I think that whatever you call it, maybe the trick is that like, I I did some harm, whether I meant to, whether I didn't mean to, whether I had all the information, whether I didn't, but there is, I, I don't have to be stuck in that place of guilt or shame for whatever the mm-hmm. rest of my life, because I think that's when people sublimate it, push it away, rationalize, um, do Darvo, like I said, or rather than there is a potential path here for me to um, make different choices going forward and get some get some resolution if I'm if I'm really open to showing up for others.
1: Absolutely. That's exactly right. It's that use it, and that's what I mean by harnessing that shame. It's about using it as a path forward, understanding what are the ways that I often respond to these feelings of shame. Like, how do I manifest my shame? And what does it mean for my values in terms of what I'm embarrassed about and what I and how I wish that I was Mm -hmm. and how I wish that I was affecting the world around me. I mean, those are all beautiful things, but that needs to be taught. People need to understand that. And like that needs to be incorporated into our processes.
3: Absolutely. I think another interesting thing is the relationship that we have. You talked about the difference between crime and harm and how we mm-hmm. tend to substitute one for the other. And I think there's definitely something in there uh, with the way that society views crime and the way that uh, some religious traditions view sin and let mm. sin and crime ideas yep. kind of go yep. pretty heartily. Any you,
1: Catholics in here? Uh,
2: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I was raised Lutheran, but I feel like I am I'm impacted by the puritanical nature of <laughs> sure, Protestantism yeah. all the time. So um,
3: I was raised yeah. Mormon, so it's all fucked
2: up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, no, no, no Catholic guilt. Uh, the, the, the guilt that is off-brand uh, guilt, sorry. Yeah, off-brand guilt is fine. We want uh, g- generic anarchist guilt is is totally okay. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Great. Store-brand anarchist guilt.
3: <laughs> the Washington <laughs> football team of guilt.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, they, well, thank you, Hal. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Let's wrap it up for this week. I think this has been amazing. Um, And I will shout out our Twitter account as always. That's how you should talk to us. Let us know if you enjoyed this. If you have other topics you'd like us to cover, if you'd like to come on the show, we'd love to have you. We're just going to go through all of our friends one by one. So no problem. (laughs) Um, So that's at Ultra Leftist. And um, Mel, do you want us to include any, plug anything for you?
1: Uh, but I would just encourage everyone to to try to tap into whatever kind of uh, abolition or restorative um, or harm harm prevention groups uh, or organizing that's going on in your city. There's a chance that there is um, somebody that's doing this work that's already attempting to build a structure outside mm-hmm. of the carceral system where we can deal with harm and getting plugged into those efforts is uh, massive. Absolutely. Okay,
0: great. Um, thank you everybody and please stay safe out there. Take care and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye friends. Bye. Bye. Bye.